0: Hey there, welcome to Subject Matter Season 4, where we're discovering how to build a strong company culture. We're learning from fast-moving founders and CEOs and how their cultures make customers want to work with them and talent want to work for them, in some cases completely remotely. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, the founder of Astutely, and our team is dedicated to supporting B2B leaders to build aligned company cultures at scale. And now, let's get into today's episode. Today's interview is with Helene Knapp. Helene is the founder and CEO of City Row. After months of spin and boot camp classes left her with a lower back injury, Helene began searching for a workout that was low impact, but highly effective. And she came across the rowing machine. And so City Row was born, delivering at-home and in-studio rowing workouts. Under her leadership, City Row has grown from one studio in New York City to 12 studios across the United States, along with an on-demand global program which launched in 2018. Helene has been featured as a business leader and a wellness expert on Today, Women's Health, ABC, Harper's Bazaar, Well and Good, Vogue, Yahoo Finance, and People, among many others. In today's interview, we learn how leaders can use self-awareness to manage their energy levels better. And spoiler alert for you guys, turns out that energy management is more important than time management sometimes. We learn why Helene and her two other founding team members use this idea of clearly defined lanes to stay where they are experts and avoid work where they are not. And finally, we also learn how Helene thinks about laying a foundation of the right team and partners to unlock City Row's growth. This was a high-intensity interview packed with insights from Helene, and I hope you enjoy. Helene, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you here today.
1: Thanks, Ben. Very happy to be here.
0: So, I thought we could start with City Row's philosophy. And part of what makes your company unique is that you really make a point of being obsessed with your end consumer. How does this obsession show up in the way that you run City Row?
1: First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to get into this together. I'm actually the consumer, so, not a fitness professional was the person looking for this experience. I needed something that didn't exist. And that was something that was going to really take care of me and think for me. And it was the thing that I wish existed in the marketplace of take care of my body. I want results. I want to push myself, but I really want to be safe at the end of the day. I want to be strong for life and think about longevity. And so that really has carried through in how we approach the market, how we approach talking to customers, how we approach our roadmap, and how we approach and really part of our macro decision and going into multiple channels of consumption, which is probably going against the grain. But we really pride ourselves on thinking for the customer and helping pull them forward. We want to be your thought partner. We want to be a really good partner to you, right? I'm a millennial. <laughs> I don't trust brands, right? You're trying to sell me something. I don't want to be a part of that. And so we want to be the antithesis of that. And so that means thinking about the customer before anything else. And yes, we've kind of checked off the box of making sure that we're taking you through something from a fitness perspective that's going to take care of you. And then from there, how do we make it easy and accessible so you actually do it? And so that were some of the macro reasons behind why we not just have brick and mortar studios, but also have a digital and why we're continuing to accelerate in both those areas is to make it easier for the consumer to hit their goals and to stay really strong for life.
0: I think what's interesting about this is we're seeing a different way to care for our consumers. Ultimately, whatever product or service we're we're selling, consumers want to know that you are appreciating them, that you care for them, that you understand their needs. And what I like about City Rose model is that you're balancing the caring between the at-home device that they have and being thoughtful in the recommendations and the workouts, et cetera, but also caring through the studios that you have and the, the instructors. So it's interesting that caring doesn't just have to happen person to person. It can actually be baked into the device now as well.
1: Sometimes it means thinking beyond like a traditional direct-to-consumer business and creating challenges, right? Like by kind of meeting the customer first, I've created business challenges as a result of them, but I think that they're worth, worth solving, right? Creating an omnichannel brand with franchisees nationwide, it's not easy, but I think it's worth figuring out. And I know that ultimately by meeting the customer's needs and really delighting them, that will be the most valuable for everyone in the long term.
0: So, could you make that tangible for our listeners then? Could you give an example of when your caring for the customer actually created a net new challenge that you and your team then went on to solve and build around?
1: For those that are not super well versed in the space, there's a default thinking of like, Oh, well, launching a digital business is going to totally cannibalize what's happening in studios, right? You're going to steal all the customers. Actually, the data shows that by having a massive digital business, we're building the brand and driving more awareness for the brand in a way that's going to actually create stickiness and engagement that will ultimately drive value for the other part of the business, and welcome in new people that might otherwise not have thought about it. Or we fell in love with it digitally and they're finally ready to come inside. And so that's definitely something that we kind of faced early on and luckily kind of brought on board a bunch of incredible franchisees that understand the power and the value and are able to leverage it for their advantage. And so we had to work through that because it's never been done before.
0: One of the things that jumps out to me in how you're approaching city rows that there's several ideas that on the surface feel like they're in tension with each other, but actually align. And we have the example of the studios complementing the digital business. And I think another example of this is a couple of principles that you have as core to the business, which are accessibility and scalability. On the one hand, to an outsider, accessibility is all about making something that is hard to access, like whatever piece of hardware that might be, like a a camera, an expensive lighting studio, a fitness device, making that easier to use. But then on the other hand, scalability is being able to roll that out to thousands of consumers at a time and, and not be bottlenecked in your supply chain. So how do you think about making City Rose products both accessible and scalable?
1: I have to give credit to the, the two women that started this business with me. The thing that I knew about rowing, and by the way, I didn't know much about rowing when I started the business. I did my research, but I hadn't had a lot of hands-on experience. But I knew and learned very early on in my research is that anybody could use this piece of equipment. And because it's low impact, it really allows people that might not have otherwise been able to push really hard on the, the treadmill or even on the spin bike to be able to see a lot of power out of this thing. And so kind of learned really early on that rowing was for all fitness levels. And you see it the second you actually look for it, that yes, it is the tool that triathletes use and Uber athletes use. Cause it is insanely hard. Right. And if you look at the rowers that are you know, in the Olympics right now, or that are competing in yeah. these kind of indoor it's rowing huge. competitions, some of the most insanely fit athletes you've mm. ever met in your whole life. And then, You see the rower on like, if you ever watch the TV show, The Biggest Loser, right? People that are very much needing to make some big changes and don't yet have a ton of stamina and they're able to use it and they're able to see power. And you know what? They're not pounding the pavement on their knees, which are hurting. And so it really is the kind of thing that all fitness levels can be a part of. And so we kind of leaned in very heavily there and you know we're not about just rowing. It's all about a hit class for us here at City Row. And so we intentionally made sure that the ways we were complementing the rower were also in the line of accessibility and scalability and it was a really fun challenge to think about, okay, well it's really easy to make something hard right? Give me a hundred burpees. It's very hard to make something challenging and to make something challenging for a lot of fitness levels. Intentionally, we make it so that you can be in a group with a wide variety of fitness levels and everyone can push to their own limits. It is an individual workout within a group fitness environment and energy and motivation. And so when we get off the rower, maybe we did, you know, how many meters can you row in a minute? We'll do it a couple times and everyone can get a couple more meters the next time they try it. Mm. And then we're gonna do something similar when we get off the machine. Meaning, okay, we're gonna do as many rounds as possible of these three workouts. So maybe some push-ups and squats, maybe we're gonna do some pull throughs. And you know what, Ben? Maybe you're gonna get six rounds in and I'm gonna get seven. We're all able to really push ourselves within that group fitness energy and motivation and excitement, but we're really only competing against ourselves. And so that's what we mean by accessibility and scalability, and that's how we built it in the early days. And th- those principles are really what helped drive us as our values as we thought about, okay, accessibility. We got to make sure that we can reach people that can't get to a studio or are afraid to. We have to make sure we have a price point that allows someone who you know can't afford a $200 piece of equipment to engage. If they can't even buy a $1,300 piece of equipment, how do they engage? Right. And so it sure. really kind of laid the groundwork for how we thought about the future of the business.
0: Something you said, I want to come back to and underscore, which is when you're engaged in these workouts, when you're on the city row rower, two things are happening at the same time. And it strikes me that there's a real clear parallel here, potentially, between how teams are run at the same time. And so on the one hand, you have a sense of individual accomplishment. If you get seven reps in and I get six, we may still have both of our personal bests. And much in the same way, teams have to function to individual goals. But the nice thing about this that sets it apart is you have the sense of camaraderie, this sense of community of people moving together at the same time. I'm curious whether that's something or how you think about that within the City Road team, this idea of bringing the team together and making sure that they can individually accomplish their work and get a sense of achievement, but also are bonded together by the team to be moving in service of a greater goal.
1: One of the things that a recruiter and we kind of recently went through, like what's it like to be at City Row? And I'll never forget this line that they kind of uncovered about us is that you get a lot of autonomy, and a good amount of freedom with really high expectations. Mm. I feel great about that. I think that, that that matches who we are. And particularly in this post-pandemic world, we've been virtual for almost 18 months now. I miss seeing people in the studio, but I also understand that to be a high performer and to be able to really have a have balance in life, sometimes you got to throw laundry in the middle of the day. Some people are night owls. Some people like to crush things first thing in the morning. And so I don't yet know what the future of our work looks like. We're still evaluating that. But I was wildly impressed with the level of performance and I think balance that people found being able to work remotely while still being part of a team that is totally crushing goals and initiatives and roadmaps. And so I'm excited to continue kind of leverage that principle of a lot of freedom with high expectations because that's the culture we're building.
0: I think it's important to underscore there as well what freedom means in this context because some people might look at freedom and say it could be working where you want. It could be having a four-day work week. It could be choosing your own project. What I'm hearing in your answer, Helene, is that You're giving people the freedom to perform how they best perform. So understanding much in the same way that every body is different and will have a different workout that's kind of primed for them. Every person or high performer is different and will have a slightly different way of doing the work as well. And so giving them that freedom means they're going to be able to reach those high expectations on their own terms, which is ultimately better for the team.
1: Totally. And listen, part of that comes from me going through a lot of self-awareness over the years and realizing I know how to set myself up to really, really excel and perform. I know what is going to deplete my energy throughout the day. And I'm able to space in other elements. A nine to five workday does not work for me. It just doesn't anymore. I see the value in popping out and getting a fr- some fresh air in the middle of the day. I encourage everyone to do that, right? I've also kind of watched my co-founder over the years. You know, when we started, we were like two, two single gals running around the city. She since got married, had two kids. And I've watched her schedule have to shift and change. And her focus is total laser on all the time when she can. But you know what? 5.45, she's got to pick up the kids. And she'll tune back in later, but how awesome is it that like we can create the flexibility that we need and it actually fuels people to live their holistic lives better. And I think that having happy employees really does translate to their output. And so I don't know what the answer looks like, but you know, I remember at a happy hour a couple of weeks ago asking someone on the team, like, what is an ideal cadence of being together in the office look like, right? Because we're starting to crave that time together. She was like, once every two weeks. And I was like, that is so cool that you know that, that you know what that looks like. Because we're starting to like, okay, this team got together. They had a great time, right? They had an amazing afternoon working session together. How often should that be? How often are we all getting together? And so I think it's amazing that people can start to have that self-awareness of what they need to perform at their best. And then it's up to the company. see, is it the right fit for you to join our culture? Does this work together? But I think if you can listen, I care a lot about the team. I care about their well-being. I care about their happiness and I care about their ability to live their life. If you kind of lead with that desire, I think a lot of really cool stuff can happen.
0: Yeah. It's important. And it reminds me of what a guest we interviewed this week, Tanya Ramos was sharing Tanya's the CEO of the Latin Grammy Cultural Foundation. She was saying the first thing she did in her new role is go on a listening tour to my new office, go around to my team and understand what their their needs are as, as people. I think something that links to this nicely is something you touched on. This idea that for high performers, energy management is increasingly, if not more valuable than time management sometimes, because if you have all the time in the world, but you have your depleted batteries, you're not going to be able to do great work. I'd be interested to hear whether there are any habits or rituals or routines that you come back to regularly to make sure that you have the best energy you can for as much of the day when you're operating.
1: The way I kind of drill it down is, Actually, more about managing your energy than managing your time. So it comes back to that self-awareness notion of knowing what depletes you. I know that in-person meetings where I'm on, or even Zoom calls now that I'm where I'm on, on video, having to pitch, having to present, is going to deplete me a lot more than sitting or standing and doing emails, or even sitting and standing and doing big work. To me, I'm an introvert. So anytime I have to be on, is going to be a lot more draining. And so when I can, I like to start my day with some of that more quieter work. And sometimes it's like, you know, crushing some really intense emails then. But I try and really contain the amount of times that I have to be on. Now, For instance, if I have a big in-person meeting or a series of meetings, like I'm going to LA for a couple of days, I got to make sure that I... Have days before and after that don't involve things like that, and that actually kind of start to really charge my batteries so that I can show up in a way that I really want to in those moments. And so for me, that looks like having like keeping mornings as light as possible. I really don't want to be on a video call before 10 or hopefully 11 a.m. And then I'm happy to keep going until, you know, five, six, whatever it takes but to really kind of find that balance of what extra depletes me versus what's just kind of like some normal business stuff.
0: It's important for listeners to reflect that back at themselves to understand that, like me, I'm 96% extroverted on on Myers-Briggs. I get a lot of energy from social situations and and people. And the same act, the same podcast interview, for example, is going to be doing different things to our energy levels. And so, having that awareness to understand yourself is, yeah, I think something that's key. And something that really struck me And when we spoke initially and in researching you is that you really seem to have spent a lot of time getting to know yourself and being aware of your strengths, but also your weaknesses, what you really want. And it manifests in how you show up. I think it's it's very important for CEOs to spend the time to be aware of themselves, to really dig into this path of self-understanding, which is honestly infinite. You you never climb the mountain, right? But it does allow for more control in our lives when we're no longer fearful of what we don't understand. How have you come to be so aware? Are there any practices that you come back to regularly or there could be uh, an inspiring conversation you had, which inspired you to to pick this up. But I'm very curious to understand how you've developed this level of self-understanding.
1: I really think it started with a need. When I had the idea for this company, I I was terrified. I was terrified. It manifested it in like me realizing like I need help. And then drilling down, like what do I need help on? And when my co-founder came on board, I always knew that we were yin-yangs. Like we were so aligned in so many ways, but we had complementary skill sets. And that was really one of the first times that I started to see self-awareness. I just initially was like, I'm just not great at colors. Like I like to wear black and white. I don't know what color this should be. I just want the studio to look good. I don't know how to get there. And so it kind of started with like, she's better at these things than me. And I really like that. And then it was like, okay, we need to hire for this other area that none of us can do. And so it kind of just started with like innate strengths and weaknesses and realizing that I wasn't afraid to say what I wasn't good at because it actually made me stronger. And I don't know if that was piece of advice or just learned it along the way, but was very, very like, I want this to be so incredible that I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And that whatever it takes means acknowledging when you are not the best person for the task. It's the same notion of like A players hire A players and B players hire C players. I want to be the stupidest person in the room, but I'm a really good quarterback. So it is my job to go find people that are better than me at all of these things that need to get done. All of them. And that starts with being vulnerable enough to say, I'm actually not good at that. I don't know the answer. And there is such power as a leader to say, I don't know, because it leads by example for other people to say, I don't know, and to ask for help and to ultimately make everything you're doing better and stronger because you're getting the right people on the right tasks. And so I kind of knew that I had to lead by example in that way.
0: It does seem like this question of, I don't know and admitting your ignorance allows you to kind of systematically uncover your blind spots. When you face a new challenge, you can say, I don't know, I need to bring in help here and not feeling attached to an ego or attached to an identity of living up to this kind of mythical founder who has it all together the whole time, but instead to ask for help. I can imagine that that has a really powerful trickle-down effect through the rest of the city Row culture where other employees are able to turn to each other and say, hey, I, I don't know about this topic. Can we collaborate on this? Can I learn from you? So everyone's building each other up rather than in our, in our own silos.
1: I hope so. That's my goal. <laughs> but it starts with being vulnerable, right? At the highest level. Am I secure enough to, you know, as Brene Brown says, step into the arena mm-hmm. and be a afraid to admit that I'm not perfect.
0: I do think the idea of the, the man in the arena is very poignant. And by the way, if you are listening and you haven't listened or read Theodore Roosevelt's speech, the man in the arena, strong recommend on uh, giving that a, a uh, listen. The thing that I find very interesting about this idea is that essentially you want to be in the per- the person in the arena who's taken a few knocks, not the person in the stand who's cheering them on. And I think where CEOs have real potential is being able to acknowledge when they've taken some knocks and to say, do you know what guys, I'm learning this just as much as you are. I'm not the finished product. I have a lot to learn and I'm gonna keep learning because it instills the growth mindset that you have. Other people in the team see that and they feed off of that and then they want to grow and they want to push themselves.
1: That's what I'm hoping for. And I'm also like, I haven't done all of this before. It would be silly if I thought that I had the answers to everything. And I think one of the things that is one of my superpowers that investors always say, it's like one of the most admirable things is that I love having a bench of people that I can call on. And whenever I bring on a new investor, I'm like, so what are you going to add to my bench? Right? When am I going to call then? What is your you know, I hate the word superpower, but I use it all the time. Like, and then it's like, oh my God, you know, everyone in my orbit is again, I'm the quarterback. Who am I going to call in for this play? That is probably one of my biggest strengths as a leader is actually knowing who to call for what and putting the best person in for that play.
0: How do you go about assessing someone's superpower? Is that something that is intuitive to you? You're looking at data evidence. What does that process look like?
1: It's ongoing. It's something that, you know, I actually, my co-founder taught this to me once by recognizing my superpowers. Again, I started this business when I was 25 years old. So this has been a journey and I am still working on all of my self-awareness, but I remember we had an event at an Under Armour rooftop on the the west side of manhattan it was a starlight lee building this like ridiculously sick rooftop overlooking lower manhattan jersey it was beautiful and we were doing an event all weekend saturday and sunday mornings totally sold out this like special event city road in under armor and you know we had to show up at like 6 45 on saturday morning to like sit up and like welcome people in and me and my co-founder and like two other people were like for my team were there ready to go and the, the contact wasn't there to let us into the Under Armour space to start setting up and like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, all of a sudden people are going to show up and it's a massive building. It's a Saturday. And I like try and like go downstairs and I'm like, Hey, can you let us in? I'm like, no, we really can't. And I remember like sitting in front of this locked Under Armour office door in this massive building. And my co-founder turns to me and she's like, go downstairs and do not come back without the key. And that's exactly what I did. I just made it happen. It was actually in watching her be able to fire up my superpowers. That was one of the first times I was like, click, right? And putting the right person in for the play. And also knowing when I was the right person for the play. And that's been incredibly powerful of also stepping in and being like, I actually have to send that email. That should really come from me.
0: That's a a great Point that you're as the leader. Yes, you're facilitating the team, but you also have to know when you are the best person for the play as well. It's this. Uh, it's this balancing act. You've mentioned your co-founder a, a few times. I just want to be clear before I ask the question. You said that you originally started the business with two other women. Are there three co-founders in total?
1: There's three of us. We're female triumvirate. Um, okay. The this founding story is I really started the business on my own, but Immediately, I was always talking to this woman Ashley that I was working with at the time. We we also booked all of our classes together. We we're very passionate about the space, and I was constantly going to her for her opinion or her advice because I knew that we brought different things to the table, and I really, really, really wanted her perspective. And she happened to like also fucking love it, so it was great. Throughout that, I was also looking for a fitness professional to come on board and kind of wear that founding instructor hat. I'm not a fitness professional. I'm just the consumer. And so I ended up bringing on board our first employee as a woman named Annie Mulgrew, who there's a great story. We actually studied abroad together, a junior year of college, lost touch. And I saw her trending on a website. And it, I was kind of at the end of my rope no at this point of, yeah, oh, it's a great, great story. And I was like, I DM'd her on Facebook. And I was like, do you want to get a coffee? I want to tell you about something. And she ignored me for a while. And finally, we grabbed a juice and I told her about it. And she's like, Helene, that's so cool let me know. I'd love to support you and come with my friends when we open. And I was like, no, I actually want you to like run it. What do you think?
0: <laughs> A little bit different than just showing up.
1: <laughs> yeah. She'd never rode before, but I believed in this woman like so wholeheartedly that I wanted to bet on her just like she was going to bet on me. Actually, Annie, who's our you know founding instructor came on board first and Ashley was helping out in the very beginning and then she came on board full-time. So Ashley Keith is the co-founder of the business and the chief brand officer. And then Annie Mulgrew is our VP and our founding instructor that leads all of our programming and ensures all of the scalability and accessibility you talk about. And the three of us run this company.
0: I think it's a, an interesting dynamic to dig into because three co-founders, typically not the norm. And three co-founders who are all women, even more exceptional again. What do you think having the combination of co-founders and founding partners that you do, how does that set you up differently compared to other businesses that might have different co-founding combinations, whether that is number of founding team or the gender of the founding team as well?
1: Every single founding team is very different. I very much love this saying of, if you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, go together. I knew that I wanted to go far together with a team of people. The reality is that I was a sole founder of this business before we opened our first studio, but I didn't want to be. And so Annie came on board and she had a massive lane that was all hers, that I barely touched her lane. And Ashley, chief brand officer, she has lanes that I barely touch. I wanted to be able to run in my own lane too. And I didn't want to do all these things that I was mediocre at. I think it's helpful that we have very clear lanes of roles and responsibilities. And I often say, that's not my lane. That's Ashley's lane. But she's been on maternity leave. I'm very honest. I'm like, this is not my lane. And I'm going to try and then I'm going to get yelled at by her for making bad decisions later because it's not my lane. I love that. I love having partners that are experts in their lanes because it actually allows me to be an expert in my lane of you know getting the keys for the Under Armour building, which also means growth and external partnerships and fundraising and all of those things. And so I'm very, very proud of our relationships as a founding team. I think it's helpful that I started this business on my own, but very quickly brought them in. And so I'm the founder and the CEO. Annie is our VP and founding instructor. Ashley, co-founder, chief brand officer. Like we have very clear sense of who's doing what. And we also happen to really like each other, but every co-founding team is different. We work really hard on this and it's not easy.
0: It does seem like before even approaching the workday, something that allows you to have such a healthy dynamic is setting clear expectations around what work you're not going to do. I think it's very easy and something I relate to as a young CEO to think you need to do it all and take on all the work and kind of be like the lane conducting all the traffic. But actually what I'm hearing is a very strongly defined sense of knowing when I'm not going to do this and it kind of links also to the awareness principle we talked about earlier of saying I don't know this isn't me so you can say that's not my lane I'm not an expert here I can help you but you're going to get a subpar opinion and let's wait till Ashley's back in the office to actually get the real opinion
1: it evolves over time lanes have changed a bit over time right you have to constantly be checking in is this working it's not working I remember a conversation where I started traveling a good amount, started to fundraise a little bit. And I was just like not a good manager to anyone because I just a one-on-one internal meeting did not align with the priorities of what my job was at the time. Right. I had to go fundraise. Well, I'm gonna cancel my one on one every single time to prioritize elsewhere. And so I remember once Ashley and I made a decision, all right, you're in charge of internal, I'm in charge of external. And it was like a defining moment in the sand. I was in LA in a friend's office and I remember that moment. And then, you know, other moments where you have to constantly recalibrate and reset because in a fast growing startup, no lane ever stays the same for too long. And you have to add more lanes. We brought on board a COO, very seasoned COO recently, and I'm like everyone to report to him and figuring out, okay, now that we are all going to get a little bit more specific, which lane are you taking as more lanes are added, right? It's just a constant conversation. So you have to have the tools to be able to have those challenging conversations.
0: Let's dig into what those tools look like. So with this ever-changing lane that is a fast-growing startup or ever-changing combination of lanes, what do you think is the approach to having those conversations about when they need restructuring? How often should they happen, first of all?
1: Probably every company is different. They probably need to have it more often than any of us want. I don't know. I think we've at, at times we've gone years without having those conversations, and then depending on how fast your growth is, they might have to happen every three months. But if you think about it, like when you start off, everyone's a bit of a generalist, and then you have to be more of a specialist, and then you have to be more of a manager and less of an individual contributor. Not everyone should be a manager. Some people are really, really good individual contributors and the, you know, they have this notion that I should be a manager because that's the next step. Well, no, not necessarily for you. you know, don't succumb to the peer pressure of this industry that says you have to be a manager. Like, If you're really, really good at delivering on your own that makes you happy, stay there and you'll crush it. I had a boss once when I started my career in publishing, always the top salesperson. She was incredible. And I remember saying like, hey, Kim, don't you want to be the associate publisher, even the publisher? And she's like, nope, pretty happy here. And it was a very, very powerful thing for me to hear My early in my career.
0: I love that. Reminds me of a lesson that I reflected on earlier this year is that I used to, about eight years ago, stack shelves at my local supermarket. And I met someone there who'd been there 40 years and he absolutely loved it. And when I spoke to him, I could see that he thought this was just some giant puzzle, some game that he was playing every single night. He'd come in, stack the shelves, line them up perfectly. And he didn't want to be running the store. He was this great individual contributor himself. And that really struck a chord with me, realizing not everyone is on this kind of path to managing more people. Some people just love their work. And and if that's where they want to be, then, then that's great. Also, something I'd love to spend some time on is this idea of how fast you want to grow. I know that an idea that's important to you is this principle of slowing down to speed up. And something you've written before or said in an interview is to have CEOs consider growing at the right pace at the right time, rather than just kind of throwing or defaulting to this very quick method of hypergrowth that is common in, in a lot of tech startups. Why is this philosophy of slowing down to speed up important to you?
1: Oh, man, it really it resonates for me. I also think it probably comes back to my scrappiness of not wanting to, you know, make mistakes or waste money. I think that without a foundation, it's really hard to build high I've also been a part of things that didn't have great foundations that built really quickly. And some are amazing success stories and some aren't. I really want to build something that lasts and that can be built really, really tall. And I think it's important to spend some time on figuring out how you lay that foundation before you scale exponentially.
0: So let's zoom in on that foundation. For you, what did that foundation or is that foundation looking like that you want to securely have in place before you would consider that growth trajectory?
1: I'm pretty glad to say that we have the foundation now. To me, what that looks like, it's heavily about the people. You talk about the listening tour that you went on earlier, or that woman went on. I've had enough listening tours. We've got a strong enough team and a strong enough foundation of team people, understanding the motivation of them, plus partners that we understand deeply and have pretty good relationships with. And so then it's just you throw fuel on the fire. So to me, it's all about the people and having a plan for the people to execute.
0: It is interesting to me how... The City Row business, it's a hybrid, right? It's it's a product and a, a service and an experience. But I think the answer you've given really does come back to or remind me of the question we asked right at the start, which is having that obsessive focus on the end consumer, just as you had have an obsessive focus on the customer every day, you've had an obsessive focus on your team and on your partners to get ready for that next phase. So it is a good lesson for everyone listening that you don't have to be in a service business to be people-oriented. And there's a lot of strength to come from making sure you have your team completely locked down, you have your partners, your strategic distribution locked down, and also the customers as well and putting their needs first. Because at the end of the day, we're all selling to people.
1: The same thing, right? Just like we as a company are putting our clients' needs first, We're also putting our team's needs first, because if my team is not grounded and my team as individuals don't have a strong foundation to build, then they're not going to be able to do their best work. And I know that they're capable of it. And so it's my job. I take it very seriously. It's my job to take care of them and make sure that they have what they need to perform.
0: Well, on that note on team performance, the last question which I'd like to ask you today is... Related to one of your other core principles, and that is creating a culture where every member of your team is proud to work at City Row. How does this principle of having your team be proud to work here affect the way that you interact with your team and in the way that you guide them as the leader?
1: I think it really comes from I mean, it's kind of this kind of anchor in culture, which is obviously, I think a term that's a li- not, not only say it's overused, but we talk about it a lot. It means a lot of different things. To me, what it means is like, I love working. And I'm not afraid to admit that. And I think that every single person on my team loves working. I think that they can all probably do a lot of different things, but they get a lot of joy out of building and being creative and working in a team. That to me is like, when you... Or building a culture, yes, you have to have diverse, like, you know, types of people and thinking and all those things, but you have to have like underlying core principles. And I really love building. I love being creative. My entire team does. So that's something that we have, I think we've attracted people to. I don't think that people are at City Row if they don't love working and love building. And also Have this deep internal intrinsic motivation that is more than just the emails and the work and the designs. They also very much have this deep belief in their core that what we're doing is helping people. Mm -hmm. And that extra intrinsic motivation that I have every day, it's what gets me up in the morning, is something that we all share. And I think that that takes you from maybe delivering, you know, 70% to 250% every single day because you're not just working for your paycheck, right? There's a different type of people, right? There's people that are, you know, just working to live, working for a paycheck, or they're working to climb the ladder. And then there are people that are working as part of a calling. They're working Mm -hmm. for something more meaningful than that. And I do that every day. I feel very, very lucky that I get to do that. And I feel pretty strongly that most, if not all people that are a part of the City Row team or our franchisees or our instructors anywhere also have that. And it really bonds us together because we're working for something more than our individual careers or paychecks. We're working on something larger together. And there's a lot of meaning and power in that.
0: It's great to underscore there as well that this is the unique way you guys have applied the principles of purpose and working for something bigger than yourselves. I think it's pretty commonly understood wisdom that teams need a a shared goal. But what I really like here is that you have fused the way you naturally show up, the the enthusiasm you have for your work, the energy you have when you're executing, when you're building, and trickle that into your team. I think that's the essence of a successful culture is to look at what your unique strengths are as a leader and then figure out how you can permeate those across your team as well.
1: And maybe hire some complementary skill sets.
0: Yes, absolutely, because you do not know it all, and yeah, you are ultimately the some of the people that you you have around you. Well, Helene, this has been a fantastic interview. Thank you so much. And if people want to follow you, they want to follow City Row. Where can they keep up with you and your journey?
1: Yeah, thank you. This was super fun. Find me on Instagram or LinkedIn. Just Helene Knapp or City Row at City Row on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You're poison.
0: Fantastic, Helene. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Ben. Talk to you
0: soon. Hey, it's Ben here just before you head off one quick thing this podcast teaches you the skill of empathetic communication and if you're interested in accelerating your empathetic communication and to start applying it to your brand and business We've created an actionable five-step checklist which breaks down the exact steps you need to take to unlock this skill and start creating messages that connect with your customers and employees' heads and hearts. You can download it for free over on our website, weareastutely.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Subject Matter.